I was looking at the I Ching, one of the ancient books of Chinese wisdom. It was a technique for divination. It was a type of oracle, sort of like tarot. But you use sticks in those times, and you would throw them, throw sticks on the ground, and they would form into patterns that could be translated into one of sixty-four hexagrams with the six sticks, and that would correspond to a message. In this book that was written by the sages, it was thought that the first hexagram that you get describes the condition, and then there would be a second one that would give you some indication of where things were going. I like this translation by Brian Brown Walker, and I was scrolling through the sixty-four hexagrams to find one that might speak to the situation that we find ourselves in now. The hexagram twelve. Heaven over Earth, which means standstill, would be relevant. So I thought I would just open up by reading this passage to you, and then we'll talk about the theme tonight. Standstill. In times of stagnation, attend to your attitude. It is an unavoidable fact of life that inferior influences sometimes prevail. Improperly motivated people ascend to power. There is injustice and conflict and poverty, and spiritual life in general descends into darkness and decay. While these difficult times are inevitable, and the arrival of this hexagram indicates that this is such a time, this does not mean that we have to stagnate personally as well. By turning inward and realigning ourselves with proper principles, we initiate the return to light, truth, and progress. The image of P is of heaven moving away from the earth. When this happens, the inferior qualities in ourselves and in others come to the surface and seek expression. It is unlikely now that you can affect what others do and say, or that your activities will bear much fruit. While it is natural to feel anxious and disappointed about this state of affairs, it is essential to disengage from these inferior emotions now. To indulge in them is to abandon your superior self and plunge into a state of disintegration. What is wise now is to accept that external progress is unlikely. Turn your attention inward and examine your own thoughts and attitudes for inferior influences and departures from the principles of the sage. By withdrawing into solitude and refining your higher nature. You continue to grow while all else around you stagnates. That hexagram from 3,500 years ago is pretty relevant today, so it inspired me to choose the theme of solitude to talk about tonight, because as we find ourselves in the middle of this worldwide meditation retreat, many of us may be encountering aloneness. Perhaps for the first time in our life, and this may be the only time in our life where the whole world would support you in your practice of solitude. I think the first authentic spiritual experience of my life, or maybe a transcendental experience, happened when I was a young boy in the woods. I sat down by a tree. And I thought about society 
for a moment, and then I asked myself, what if there was no society? What if it was just me? Because it was only me in the beginning, meaning before I was born, there was no others, and it's only me when I go. So what if the reality is that there's no such thing as society? And then I just said in that space, what would that mean for me? And then I said, why stop there? What if there was no nature, no planets, no stars, no universe? There was no planets, stars, and universe before I was born. And then I sat in that space and lost my ordinary consciousness. And then when I came back, I felt awkward and didn't know what to do with that experience didn't really make sense to talk about it with anybody because it didn't fit into the experience. And it wasn't until many, many years later that I was able to learn about the practice that I took up in the woods as an actual technique that can be taught. It's called neti neti in Indian philosophy, which means not this, not that. This isn't the ultimate reality. That's not the ultimate reality. And as you intellectually discard or shed some of these things, you're left with solitude. Solitude is difficult to describe, difficult to define, and I think people give contradictory definitions of it. But for our purposes, I like to think of solitude and two sides of a coin. The coin of aloneness. Now we have two words to describe what it feels like to be alone. Being alone doesn't dictate one or the other of these emotional experiences, but the dread of being alone we talk about is loneliness. And in the past, we've gone deeper into the themes around loneliness and how it's harmful to our health. But I think the other side of being alone is solitude. And I think solitude is the word to describe the glory of aloneness. I once met a monk in India named Moni Baba. Moni means silent, Baba means father. My teacher introduced me to him. And he had recently completed 12 years in seclusion and 12 years of silence, a special austerity among certain yogis. And when he spoke to me, just a few words, it felt like his words were energy packets wrapped in language, energy of love and compassion. It was like each word went right to the heart because everything that came out of his mouth was so careful because he had that long time to detox from speaking and to detox from society. Then I had another experience before I went to India. I traveled out to New Mexico and I made my way to a Benedictine monastery near uh, the town of Abiquiu. But it's, it's actually nowhere near that town. It's still an hour drive from the nearest town. And the last part is just dirt desert road along the Rio Chama till you get to peace monastery of Christ in the desert. And then when I got out there, 
I got to hear the sound of nothingness, just desert. And all the monks in Peace Monastery in New Mexico are silent. But one monk is allowed to speak if there's a guest and there's a little bell where that guest could get the attention of the one designated monk who can speak that day if necessary. And so I went and rang that bell and I asked him about what we talked about last week. I said, I still have different fears in life. What do you recommend for overcoming fear? And he gave me some tips about courage like we talked about before. But basically, I would summarize it like this. He said that fear has a face and we never want to really look at that face. And courage has a face, that's your face. So when you come face to face with fear, then you can come to an understanding and fear will let you pass. And that's been helpful to me throughout my life. More recently, last year, I was in Northern California visiting my parents and some other family were in California for the first time and they wanted to go to Alcatraz. So they asked if I wanted to come with. I said, yeah, I'll be happy to go with you. Never thought to go to Alcatraz in my life, but it was a unique experience to take the ferry out to Alcatraz Island and do a tour of the famous prison. On this tour, there's an audio guide and it really takes you into the life of being a prisoner on Alcatraz. What was kind of surprising to me is I connected with empathy for imprisonment. I didn't feel that terror of being confined. I'm looking in the rooms and I would even go into one of the cells. My natural response to it was solitude. It was like, oh, here's how I could meditate in this space or here's how I would contemplate the reality. And so that's what solitude requires. It requires that you actually embrace that experience. So solitude cannot work if it's involuntary. Then it becomes loneliness and it has very negative effects. The reason why I want to bring this up tonight is because to some extent, our aloneness or our seclusion, it may be with our families and some friends, but there will probably be long periods of time where you don't get to really be around others in the way that you would like to and that would be ordinary for you. So to some extent, this is imposed on us. And we have a choice to either feel like it's a punishment or to feel like this is a retreat and I choose to participate on this retreat. The environment externally is already such that we're permitted to step away from our ordinary routines and be on this meditation retreat. And now the question is, can we practice solitude? And so to take this further, solitude has a relationship with society. Solitude may not be solitude if we are technically alone, but the entire time we are grasping for meaning within society. This isn't to say spend this entire time 
having no interaction with anyone. It's to say, build in moments of aloneness where you are not trying to recreate all of the social norms. Because the real benefit of solitude is to take a break from all of the influences of society. One such break or relief that you would get is freedom from the spotlight effect. Spotlight effect in psychology is a cognitive bias that states that we believe that we are being noticed more than we really are. And it's an exaggeration of how others see our successes and failures because we are imposing our perspective on society onto others. And to get freedom from that, relief from that, has tremendous benefit on the brain and creativity and health and so on. And we don't even realize that we suffer from self-consciousness. It's funny that it's called self-consciousness because it's actually nothing like self-consciousness. It's other consciousness. It's awareness that other people are thinking about me in a way that they're not. And so it's all based in illusion to a great extent. Self-consciousness is what solitude is all about. It's about a return to self. I would define it further as a kind of nakedness, not in a physical sense, like of removing of your physical clothes, but removing the clothes of ego, which is adopted through society. Ego has three components. One is that there is an ego of identity. What is our identity that we use to introduce ourselves and to anyone? It's our relationship to the society. Brother means somebody else in society I have a relationship with. Father, mother, counselor, doctor, etc. Those, all those identities say something about my relationship to society. If there were no society, none of those identities would work. And yet, you would still be. So there's something false about the ego. There's something false about the way we define our identity. And the nakedness then of solitude is to remove that. And you'll find that when you spend time in solitude, you spontaneously lose some of the ego. To just be walking in nature, possession doesn't enter into it. Identity doesn't enter into it. Possession is another one. So the mindness of ego also reinforces separateness. This is my house. This is my yard. This is my job, my things, my car. This is my person. This is my partner. Again, all the mindness is only relevant when there's a society. To be walking alone in nature, the mindness doesn't come up. It's not relevant. It's only to show others. And then the third one is doership. So this is probably the trickiest part of solitude and where it may be hard to know if a person is actually cultivating solitude or growing in solitude or not because of the doership. In Sanskrit, the word for ego is ahamkara. Aham means I am and kara means doing. Definition is I'm doing something. I'm the doer. 
all these things that happen, we say we're doing, but if you analyze in a very deep way, it's hard to actually find the agent that's doing. When we say, I'm cooking, well, do we mean we're actually heating up the food or is the fire doing that? Well, I'm chopping the vegetables. Are we doing the chopping or is the blade doing the chopping? You see, you have a sense that the doer is the identity that sits like in the driver's seat and the head behind the eyes and pulling all the levers to make things happen. But when you actually look for the doer, you can't find one. And again, in solitude, when you separate yourself from the society, then that doesn't come up either, that I did this, or that there's even something to be done. Person just starts to feel like there is presence, an awareness, a consciousness, a being, a being without having to do. So when you think about making time for solitude or making time for meditation, because meditation True meditation is always solitude. Because meditation isn't something that you actually do. If you're thinking about meditation and solitude as one more thing I got to do, you're thinking about it in the wrong way. Meditation is not doing. So what's actually happening when we don't make time for meditation is we're just simply burdening ourselves with doing. So to meditate means to actually make less time for doing. There's nothing actually to be done with meditation. It's just the stripping away of all the doing. There's no extra doing with meditation, although it feels in the beginning like I have to pick a time and add that on to my life. But really what we have to do is we have to subtract. When you don't have this voluntary aspect of solitude, then it's usually painful for people. There's been psychological experiments where people are forced to be alone, even for a short amount of time. In a study of a large group of people placed in a room for five to 15 minutes alone with nothing but a little buzzer that will give them an electric shock. Within between five and 15 minutes, 70% of men will shock themselves. <laughs> Only 25% of women will shock themselves. But people can't go without doing. Okay, so that's one of the important features of solitude, that we also have to just be. Meditation may be the way to experience this. It could just be walking in nature. I think walking in nature would work because being connected to a larger system, the whole we don't get this strong sense that I'm walking, I'm walking, I'm doing something. I think we're just present. Solitude, though, has gotten a bad rap also in culture. Some unfortunate individuals, I think, have given solitude a bad name and therefore were a little bit scared of solitude think of like the Unabomber or Osama bin Laden in a hiding out in a cave. It makes society suspicious. Why is some person spending time away from the society? The more and more people 
are drawn to the most urban areas of the world. The urban centers grow larger and larger and larger. Rural people are a little bit feeling left behind because all the work and everything is happening in the cities. But even if you find yourself in a city, it will be good to step away, more of a reason to step away from society. So again, there's a nakedness to it. I also think of it like a thread that goes through a flower garland. The beginning of the thread is your birth. At birth, you're alone. You enter the world alone inside of the womb. There's no others. There's no world even. There's just emptiness, nothingness. But everything's taken care of. You have stillness. Then at the other end of this thread of your life, you have your departure. And when you depart, once again, you leave everything here, you go with nothing, and you go by yourself. So in between these great expanses of nothingness or emptiness, there are a series of events and a relationship with a society. And the events are, I have family, I love somebody, I have a new family, I take on some work for the society. And all of these events become the flowers on the garland. And it's nice to add the flowers because it decorates the time, decorates the life, makes life beautiful. But after the thread is filled with flowers, you can no longer see the thread. And the thread is the self. So we totally lose who we are. And solitude is about going beyond the flowers, the garland, and coming to the thread. The one thing that remains constant from birth to death. The truth of who we are, the nakedness of of our existence. Solitude seems to be a theme for almost all the major religions of the world. In the Abrahamic traditions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, you have the prophets of these spiritual traditions spending significant time in solitude that leads to great revelations for the people of those paths. For example, Jesus spent 40 days in the desert and was tempted by Satan. In those traditions, 40 seems to be the magic number here. Somehow 40 indicates some period of austerity, but also coupled with temptation. Meaning that the great prophet or seeker doesn't have to do this. Solitude is not solitude when it's forced upon you, like I said in the beginning. It's also not solitude if you have no meaningful relationships. Just like solitude is solitude for these great prophets because they could have turned away and enjoyed all of the luxury of society. So Jesus was tempted in the desert for 40 days. Moses spent time on the mountain where supposedly he communed with God and then the commandments were revealed to him. And when he led the Jews out of 
Egypt in Exodus, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. So there's 40 again. The Prophet Muhammad from his teenage years would go to the cave of Hira and he would spend maybe just a few days there and then he'd come back. He had a family, so he would go maybe for the equivalent of a weekend and return, trying to contemplate the society. What is this society and its influence on me? And then supposedly when he turned 40, the angel Jibril or Gabriel in English appeared to him and that was the beginning of the Quran when he was 40. So there you have 40 again. I think numbers are symbols. I think most of this is mythology. I'm not a dogmatic person, but I can look at stories and mythology and access deeper psychological truths and wisdom that may be universal, that may be timeless. This number 40, though, is interesting, I think, for us right now, because in Illinois, our shelter in place or quarantine at home, whatever you want to call it, began on Saturday, March 21st, I think. And then just the other day, the White House announced that we're extending social distancing measures for your state and whatever the guidelines are right now till April 30th, and then we'll reassess. So that's 40 days. So we have 40 days of seclusion right now. And it's up to us to decide how we will use that time. I would suggest that we take time to connect. We take time to serve and be compassionate and empathetic with the other people because this is a time of turmoil also. But then we also use this to step away from society altogether and not just spend every waking moment grasping for something to do. In the Eastern traditions, there's also seclusion and solitude for the founders of religions. Buddha left the palace, the kingdom, and spent six years in the forest and then attained nirvana under the Bodhi tree. After, I believe, a 40-day period of fasting and meditation, Rama, the incarnation of Vishnu, an ancient epic of India, the Ramayana, was exiled from his kingdom, different than the Buddha. The Buddha voluntarily left. But through a mistaken promise from Rama's father, the king, to one of his wives, he was tricked into banishing his own son because the stepmother didn't want Rama to be king. She wanted her son to be the king. But Rama, who is noble, said, yeah, I will honor the wishes of my parents, both my parents. And so he left and went to the forest. After the 14-year exile, Rama returns. And because everybody knew that Rama was truly noble and wise and uh, humble, they decorated all of their homes with candles to celebrate his return after this long period without their leader. And that's now known as Diwali, the festival of lights in India and is also celebrated around the world. And what it really means is the return 
to the self. Brahma is a representation of the soul, just like Shiva, just like any incarnation of Vishnu. And so the lights indicate the inner light, the light within. You put it on your home as an external celebration, but the inner practice is to come back and find and bask in the inner light of soul consciousness. In art, you find that some of the great musical works, the great literary works, the great visual works were done in some period of solitude. But you have to be careful, I think, using solitude to make something. Because if you're creating a work of art in solitude and your mind is attached to what the work will mean for the society in the society and where it would go and how it will be received by the society, then it's not solitude. Then once again, in our mind, we have not unplugged from all the social pressures. Picasso said, no great work is possible without solitude. And then the transcendentalists, uh, the American transcendentalists of like Thoreau and Whitman, and especially Emerson, the father of transcendentalism, he had an essay called The Transcendentalist. I would encourage us Americans to review our own heroes of solitude like them, and also Emily Dickinson, Margaret Fuller. There are other women involved in the transcendental movement as well who contributed great writings and reflections. Most of us are familiar with Henry David Thoreau spending two and a half years in the woods to live deliberately to face the, only the essential facts of life, he said, so that when he finished, he wouldn't find that he had lived in vain or missed the great meaning. Interestingly, he spent that time in a cabin that he made on a corner of Emerson's property. Emerson was his teacher and Thoreau was the pupil. And he said afterwards, I've never found a companion so companionable as solitude. <laughs> Just take some quotes from Walden. It'll really tune the mind to this quality. Dostoevsky said, solitude for the mind is like food for the body. There was also an Italian journalist in the 80s who spent time in solitude in Japan named Tiziano Terzani. And he had a quote that I liked that said, at last I had time to have time. So I would like to wrap up this part by summarizing or highlighting the benefits of solitude. There will be eight. The first four are for you personally and the next four will be for after your solitude, for your life in society. The first one is that it's restorative. There are many studies that show how it's healing to spend time alone. 80% of people will say, I need some time alone. And yet we also fear being alone. So deep down, we kind of understand that we need to come back to ourselves. Studies show that it strengthens the hippocampus in the brain, which means that it translates to a stronger and stronger memory. I wonder about that sometimes. Why would solitude lead to better memory? And I think that 
when we're constantly obsessed with doing tasks, external tasks, and you remove that, you remove the external doing, well, that's when you actually start to create real memories or real experiences that will then become your memory. So if I'm just simply doing something for work, usually it's like building something, building relationships for the future, reaching out to people, making connections, trying to make things happen for the future or resolve conflicts from the past. So I'm not not always present just when I'm working or when I'm engaged with some activity. I'm not necessarily creating a quality memory in the present moment. And then also, there's actually more meaningful activity in all the areas of the brain when a person is in solitude. So when a person is doing a task, there'll be a certain neural circuit that's active related to whatever the task is. But when a person is not doing, this allows for all of the brain to integrate everything. And so a person starts to heal, they become more intelligent, they become more centered in themselves, and they become more spiritual. So the first one is restorative. The second one is that you will have less need for validation. The need for validation in life can cripple a person, can make it hard for them to be truly authentic. Because if you need the uh, external reinforcement and you don't get it, well, then you may not have the courage to go forward. But when you're in solitude, whatever it is that's happening needs no approval from the family, from society, from others, and so on. And there's a freedom in that. And then if you carry your solitude with you into your interactions, you'll be a much stronger person. The third one is moderation in thinking. We think kind of habitually. We don't realize that we're not actually authoring all these thoughts. We say, I think. But if I'm the one thinking, why can't I just stop thinking like that? Why can't I just turn off the thoughts like I would turn off a faucet if I'm the one doing the thinking? So really, it's thinking. The brain is generating all these thoughts and it's becoming habitual. It becomes addictive to keep thinking, to keep worrying, to keep predicting, to keep fixating and ruminating and preoccupying ourselves with everything. And when you're in solitude and you let go of the doing, you get relief from thoughts as you cultivate this practice. It can be so liberating to have few thoughts in the mind and to have thoughts as a tool more at your disposal to be able to reach into the suggestion box when you need a suggestion and pull out a thought. Ordinarily, to find the useful thought in this mess of racing thoughts is like trying to find the needle in the haystack, the needle being the good thought, the useful thought for the present moment. Very few thoughts that we ever have are truly useful for right here and right now. Then the next one is creativity. Speaking of George Harrison, he was uh, sued for My Sweet Lord. The melody was similar to a song by a women's soul group. And when he lost that case, he decided not to listen to music for some time. 
he wanted to disconnect from society in that way, to choose some solitude so that he could really create. I mean, we don't realize that a lot of the things we're, we're making or creating is to some extent a regurgitation. Much of what I share is what I've heard and what I've been taught. I continuously say very little of this is my own. It's mostly like part of a chain. I feel like I'm just a delivery boy here, distributing wisdom from others. But if we spend time in solitude, we can really see what might be the original impulse surging through us from the universe. So that's the personal side. Now, the, on the interpersonal side, we have relationships. Believe it or not, relationships will improve if you spend time alone in a glorious way. Because being alone teaches one to love their own company. If your whole life, the relationships serve to keep you away from yourself, to hide you from your own company, or so that you can stomach your own company, that's actually the energy that we take into all our connections. There's a subtle message that I don't like myself. I don't like my own company, but I hope you do. And that will probably lead to difficulty in relationships if we don't ever face this within ourselves. Nietzsche said that joylessness is way more contagious than happiness. And you will always find one joyless person. Could be in the family, could be in the workplace, somewhere. And it spoils so much. So if we don't want to be affected by that, we have to use solitude. So then he goes on to say in Thus Spake Zarathustra that one man runs to his neighbor to find himself, another to lose himself. Your bad love for yourselves makes aloneness a prison for you. Think of solitude as the complement to love. I'd mentioned before, even when you fall asleep in the arms of your lover, once you're in deep sleep, you're alone again. And in that state, it's beautiful. Nobody hates that. Nobody says, I was totally by myself and dealt to sleep. They love it. It's like going back to the womb where there was nothing to do. And then we emerge from that energized, refreshed. And if we're with our lover again, then it's beautiful. So think of solitude and love as the two wings of the bird so that your relationship can soar. And then to honor that in the other person. Make sure you're honoring the solitude and supporting the solitude of your partner. Beyond that, empathy and universal love will grow. When a person is in solitude and they're disconnected from society, they're no longer enmeshed with the few dynamics of society. You can actually contemplate the whole, the whole society, the whole universe. It's like being at a festival with some friends and it's all about what you and your friends want to do, which concert you want to go to and maybe disagreements come up because one wants to see this concert, the other wants to see that concert. And then solitude is like going outside of the festival and maybe sitting on a hill or a mountaintop like at Telluride and looking down on the festival. Now there's no 
one relationship between you and another person. There's simply a reflection of the whole, the whole festival, the whole humanity. And when you can look upon the whole humanity in your solitude or the whole of nature, you're still a loving being. We are intrinsically loving. There's a truth within us that is unbelievably loving. And now it won't be all about just this one person or this one relationship or set of relations. You can feel it towards the whole. And that is an experience of universal love, which is truly liberating because it's no longer dependent on reciprocity. Then if you practice solitude, people will spontaneously be drawn to you. And I think that could be considered a benefit because it's wonderful to have the magnetism or the aura of magnetism where you feel like you're a living temple in the chaos of the world, you know, that your heart is a temple where people can take refuge. That's what happens for the person of solitude. That's what happened for the great prophets. People took refuge near them. But I think in a very practical way, people will feel safe in your energy. People will be drawn to you. And then the last one is that you will belong to an invisible community of seekers. Not just the seekers of today, but the seekers of the past and the seekers to come. Those who accepted the call and embarked on that adventure. And you will feel it. So I think initially it may be a bit intimidating to face ourselves, to be with ourselves, to return to ourselves. But I think you will see that there is some magic in it. And I think that's why we have these mythological stories of the Archangel Gabriel coming to Muhammad or in the case of the poet Hafiz. Some of you may be familiar with the poetry of Hafiz. He's one of the, I'd say, greatest literary influences on me and my songwriting. I've read lots of translations of his poems. I'll just tell you quickly, his story was one of a poor man. He was a baker or an assistant at a bakery. And when he was 20 years old, he saw a beautiful woman and he instantly fell in love with her but he was short and described as unattractive. And so he thought his situation was hopeless with her. He knew of some technique to win the favor of somebody, a spiritual austerity. And that was by spending 40 nights alert at the tomb of a saint. So he did his job at day and at night, he chanted and prayed and sang by the tomb of this saint in hopes that an angel would come and bless him with the love of this woman. And his love was so strong, his desire was so strong for this woman that he was able to achieve it. And on the 40th day, the Archangel Gabriel came to Hafiz and said, what can I give you, my child? You know, I have watched your austerity. And even though he was supposed to ask for the love of this woman, he ended up asking for the love of the divine to experience the truth. 
And so the angel directed him to a spiritual master, Atar. And so the very next day, Hafiz began his apprenticeship to the spiritual master. And after a long period of discipleship and confusion and difficulty understanding his master and feeling disillusioned and then feeling confident and then feeling brokenhearted and then feeling hopeless and then feeling like it's possible again and then again feeling defeated. After 40 years of being a student of Atar, he said, I had enough. I've had enough of your lectures and your teachings and your mystery. I'm tired of it all. And he went back to the tomb and he drew a circle there and he decided to sit in that circle for 40 days or until he died, unless given the truth. And after the 40-day fast there, the angel came again and said, go back to your master and he'll bless you with the reality. He went back to Atar, knocked on his door, and Atar let him in and poured him a glass of wine. And when Hafiz drank the wine, he spontaneously merged into the universe. And so originally his love poems for this woman made him famous or spread the word of Hafiz at the time because he was drunk on lust and he was just singing these uh, prayers for this woman's hand. And it, but it transformed into these songs of divinity. Anyways, this is the invisible community of seekers. I wanted to add one more thing onto relationships, specifically for marriage. I have a quote here. I want to read to you from the book, Solitude, A Return to Self by Anthony Storr. Our expectation that satisfying intimate relationships should ideally provide happiness and that if they do not, there must be something wrong with those relationships seems to be exaggerated. It may be our idealization of interpersonal relationships in the West that cause marriage, supposedly the most intimate tie, to be so unstable. If we did not look to marriage as the principal source of happiness, fewer marriages would end in tears. All right, we'll pause there. And are there any questions about any of the things we've talked about so far? Todd, one of the initial questions I have here is if we are able to master the solitude or kind of, you know, find a love for it, how do we return back when this is, when this is all the world is operating as normal? Thank you. That's a great question. How do we return back? If you think of the analogy of the garland and the thread, you return back, but you don't forget yourself. And when we realize that we've forgotten the self and we're suffering from the spotlight effect psychologically, and we're suffering from ego, ego of doership, ego of possession, ego of identity, then release and come back to the solitude. Now this will be a process for some time. We're just forgetting, then we're forgetting that we're forgetting, then we realize we're forgetting, and then we remember. And then the goal in this process of 
making time for solitude and making time to be in the in the society is to ultimately not lose the sense of solitude just as somebody can be lonely even if they're with others right some of us have felt that and you've certainly heard people say that yeah i'm married or i have family or i have work but i feel lonely even though they're in the company of others that's the one side of aloneness right so that must mean it's possible to be established in solitude even though we're with others that's why i say it's so tricky to define thank you yeah i have another question here todd is how do you find solitude in this time while i'm living in a household full of people so that's i think the the trickier part right now is making time for this even though you're not actually alone because you might be spending more time with your family than you ever have in your life i think it's going to be important for families to work on this together i mean that's part of the challenge for people who actually aren't alone is you don't get any time alone now you're you're in seclusion with a group of people so it's not really seclusion i think there ought to be a family meeting where we talk about how to give each other space how to respect each other's space because ordinarily people can just walk out go to the store or go to a restaurant go out to eat see other people and we're limited in that way so i would say talk about it ahead of time with your family talk about how we can honor the solitude of each other in your own language but i think that will be easier than waiting until it's too suffocating thank you I have another one here. Can you give a little bit of clarification around returning to self? So, specifically thinking about as you return to yourself in these moments of solitude, there's moments of fear. How do we push through those? Well, I would say in the beginning, take smaller doses of solitude. If it becomes miserable at all to be alone, well then you have to use a coping skill so one of the other conditions for this that has to be voluntary but also there has to be some emotional stability and then do it in gradual increments so i think the simplest way to do it is to treat solitude as a luxury especially if you find that you're pretty burdened by tasks and responsibilities and relationships The word for marriage in Sanskrit is vivaha which means to carry a heavy load. <laughs> so if you think about how you would answer the question who are you? Anything you come up with is probably something relative to society. So returning to self means that through negation you don't actually take on a new self, you strip away all the non-self that's why it's called in sanskrit neti neti which means i'm not just a counselor i'm not just a musician i'm not just a teacher or worker or husband or wife or all the roles that i play and then just rest easy in being there's nothing new to acquire nothing to bring in externally if it was brought in externally then it would not be the real self Thank you. Hi everybody. I just want to thank you for um this particular quote. Very few thoughts are of value right now. 
I think that is just such a precious nugget because I've been realizing that um, in order to manage and try to keep rediscovering balance and equanimity in this, I've been sort of thinking that sometimes my job is to live in half hour increments to just scale it to what what makes sense right now but i think that the projections you know like into the future even if it's like a couple of days into the future create so much pain and so much anxiety and worry and right this minute when I scale it back, I'm like, what are the thoughts that are of value right now? These thoughts are probably not of value right this moment as I'm trying to be present. But I just wanted to thank you especially for that. Oh, happy you're here. Thank you for sharing that. So I would just add on to that, that probably all of us have realized that in this time, planning doesn't work. How can we plan? I mean, we might be able to plan dinner, but we can't really plan much beyond today. And yet, I think if you observe your mind, you'll find like you might have the ability to work from home. Things might be okay. So how much does fear and suffering mentally, what good is it? It's not, it's not good, right? And you will also notice if you observe the workings of your mind that we are addicted to planning. We can't just rest easy in the present moment. It reminds me of a poem by Mary Oliver, The Summer Day. Part of it is, I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is, it, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Okay, thank you, Todd. So I have a bunch of questions, but I will just stick to one. <laughs> um, so I totally see and understand and agree uh, if that's necessary with the, the concept of solitude that you shared. And I see this as a world opportunity, like a massive opportunity to practice that solitude. And if there is growth and a betterment of as as humans from that solitude, and and since so many million of people are going to be exposed to this opportunity, and let's assume for a moment that we will take a good opportunity to work and go through that solitude and massively many people grow through it through it what can be the positive outcome of that what what can happen from that wonderful opportunity well i do think it's a wonderful opportunity in that sense if great works of art i mean picasso's and einstein's and more come out of one person's solitude you know, mm-hmm. Walden and nature uh, from Emerson and so on. 
and leaves of grass from Whitman, if such profound reflections on reality and society come out of one man or woman's solitude, what will mm -hmm. come out of seven billion people spending time in solitude? I, I would imagine there is tremendous potential for healing and for the eight benefits that I listed, but in a mass way. But the hallmark of this experience is uncertainty. So I can't say that that will definitely happen or not. But hopefully what comes out of it is less egoism, less greed, mm -hmm. more love, more empathy, more compassion. Mm 